You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States and the long 19th century. This episode explores the rise in labor action among graduate student workers in academia. Our hosts, Max Chapnick and Lawrence Lorraine Mullen, draw on their experience as union organizers, and they introduce us to a larger conversation about labor action, pedagogy, and graduate student research. While graduate student unions have existed for well over half a century, in the last two decades and even in the last few years, North America has experienced a wave of labor activity from graduate student workers. The student workers of Columbia reached a tentative agreement after an historic 10-week strike. At about the same time, the University of California system was forced to include thousands of student researchers in their graduate union. Between when we submitted our C-19 podcast proposal and when this episode goes live, tens of thousands of academic workers, including graduate workers at Yale, the University of Chicago, Johns Hopkins University, and Northwestern University have already won their unions. As a result, an increasing number of literary studies PhDs were born from a union. In organizing, there's a phrase, the union difference. But what difference does it make to our scholarship that more and more junior scholars made their way through graduate school in the crucible of labor action? Do acts of organizing, one-on-one conversations with storytelling and question asking, and strategic moves like social mapping and structure tests influence how we approach literature? What does a budding scholar of 19th century sensation fiction add to a union card drive? This podcast episode grows out of a panel on graduate student organizing and scholarship at the MLA conference back in January 2023 in San Francisco. I am Lawrence Lorraine Mullen, a graduate worker and PhD candidate at the University of Buffalo and the current business agent or chapter president of the Graduate Student Employees Union at the university proper and for Western New York SUNY campuses. And I am Max Chapnick, a graduate worker and PhD candidate at Boston University and a longtime organizing com- committee member of the Boston University Graduate Workers Union. At the MLA panel, we were joined by Francesca Kalanese, Mushira Habib, Rachel Hartnett, Joanna King Slutsky, James Rizzi, and Valerie Uer, all current or former graduate student worker organizers in literary disciplines. After the panel, we met to continue the conversation with Francesca and Joanna, both of whom, like Max and I, study the 19th century. We begin this episode by sharing brief clips from the conference panel to introduce listeners to some of the more pressing issues that graduate students face when union organizing. Afterwards, Max, Francesca, Joanna, and I discuss topics such as the relationship between close reading and contract interpretation, the autonomy or disinterestedness of art, and the ways our organizing makes us see our research topics in a new light. Max, are you ready to begin? Let's get started. So I'm Francesca, and I am at the University of Washington in Seattle. We have had our graduate students unionized for nearly 20 years now. Um, we're UAW 4121, which was picked as 
being in favor for one-to-one organizing. So I come into a university that has had a, a culture about the personal for organizing, which for me as someone who mainly focuses on healthcare work is extremely important. I've become the go-to person to ask questions about healthcare, about health insurance, and how to solve problems accessing medical care, which is quite a level of trust that people have to put in you. Someone who specializes in Victorian poetry, (laughs) he seems an awkward fit until you realize how much we all read really difficult documents. There is no sentence in a health insurance pamphlet that is really as difficult as a sentence of <laughs> It just, it is boring, it is hard, it is complicated, and it is purposely so by our capitalistic medical system in the US, and yet it's actually very approachable if you just tackle it with the idea, oh, I have terms I need to figure out. Oh, I need to go through this like any other difficult bit of theory that I ever have read. So I've become this person also conjoined with the fact that I have my own history of chronic illness and have a lot of sort of importance that I place on making sure that people get the care they deserve. Lawrence, I know you've helped to enforce a union contract. Does this application of close reading poetry make sense to you? Absolutely. I mean, we often have to scour through the contract to be able to pull apart applicable pieces of language. And as someone who is not a lawyer and does not have a legal background, having to rely on the skills of close reading that I've developed throughout my master's degree and now PhD are absolutely skill sets that we use regularly in order to enforce the contract. Yeah, that makes sense to me. We're about to enter our own contract bargaining, our first contract, and there will be a few humanities folks on the bargaining committee, so I hope that they can bring those skills to the table as well. We're now going to move on to Johanna's presentation, which gives an opposing view on the relationship between our academic work and union work, and how the two might not be as connected as they seem. Academically, my work is, uh, I'm a, I study transatlantic romanticism, and I'm interested in theories of energy in transatlantic romanticism, and um, especially this term called metabolic rift, which is a Marxian term. Um, if anybody's familiar with it, it basically just refers to this idea that energy circuits have gotten disrupted under capitalism in modern economy. So I'm interested in kind of like a prehistory of, of that term. That's what my academic work is about. And so in a sense that informs my organizing work insofar as I often see like labor practices in terms of energy investments and like ideas like entropy are like just part of how my mind works. But I have probably a different attitude to a lot of people on the panel here in that to me it's um, extremely important that my organizing work and perhaps more people's organizing work be disconnected from the academic work I do. In my mind, there is a huge danger with associating the kind of intellectual labor we do with these bigger social justice political projects. And so I think we'll be talking about this a little bit more in the context of the new school later. 
And as a kind of sad example of that, multiple people involved at the administrative level studied labor. Um, our former provost was a labor historian, and yet he was employed to break our strike in spring of 2021. We now have a provost who studies <laughs> nanotechnology for the military. Um, uh, so to me, there's clearly a disconnect. And I think part of why that's possible, it's not because we're like, anybody's a bad person. I think it's because it's very easy to think that pursuing intellectual projects related to social justice, particularly labor, but really anything, you know, race, whatever, serve as the actual, like, you know, substance of organizing or political projects. Um, and I think that's a big mistake. Max, is this something you've experienced in your union work? What is the relationship between academics who study labor and real labor solidarity? Um, I will say that I have many examples of the inverse. Um, so in our union campaign, some of the most engaged organizers were not scholars of labor history, Marxism or literature, but biomedical engineering, astronomers and chemists. Actually, our, some of our engineering programs and natural science programs voted yes with a higher turnout percentage than some of the other social science and humanities programs. So the fact that, you know, sometimes humanists and social scientists aren't always in solidarity with labor action has this inverse effect where scientists are often in solidarity at a higher percentage. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, at the University of Buffalo, we do often see the opposite. Our humanities departments are disproportionately more engaged in union work than some of our STEM, and particularly some of our sort of hard science engineering majors. Um, but ultimately, I mean, there's there's no department that has zero card signs, right? So there's, there's solidarity in every department and in, in every sector um, sort of across the board. But it is interesting to see how that percentage fluctuates depending on the university at times. Finally, we have Mushira, who unfortunately could not make our Zoom call today, who spoke about her diversity work within their union and how it is important to remember the foundations of some of our unions and white supremacists and colonial structures. Our union, Graduate Teaching Fellows Federation, was apparently the third graduate union in the country, established in 1975. It looks very good on paper. What... <laughs> um, doesn't get talked about is as blue as the state is, it is also as white. And if you look at the even Jim Crow laws, um, Oregon was reinstituting them until the 50s, right? So when in 1975, there's a union for the graduate students, it's an all white graduate union. Because even if there were people of color coming into the state, they hadn't reached the graduate student level of education yet. So what happens since then is that people of color have started coming in and realize that there aren't enough resources, there are no communities, and I was expected to do the, you know, binary work of fixing the university's equity and inclusion issues, whereas the problem was lying inside the union for the most part. So the union was a reflection of the institutes that the members came from, right? So they had never had an international woman of color as a supervisor or an instructor and in any position of power for that matter. So 
I became the problem instead of solving problems. And a lot of the projects and issues I was trying to raise um, wouldn't even reach the membership because I would get censored by other board members that didn't think it was kosher what I was trying to do. They thought it was too progressive. Members wouldn't react well to it, whereas it never reached the members for them to even react to it. The performative allyship of Oregon started reflecting in the union um, politics itself that even though on paper, they were allies and supporting diversity inclusion. They had a VP for equity and inclusion. It was supposed to do lip service and not real work. So since then, I tried to bring it back to my classroom. I taught composition. I teach comparative literature now. I don't want my students to reach that level and not have the language and actual empathy to be real allies and do the work that they need to do. So I started heavily focusing on anti-oppressive pedagogy um, at a time where the English department and the composition program was also trying to work with it, but didn't have people or language to do the work. It was great to hear about diversity and inclusion in union work and how we might consider our teaching practices and pedagogy more broadly within this framework. Have you seen this or similar topics arise in your union work, Max? Yeah, so our union has some structures to make sure that we are including marginalized voices. For example, we have a range of identity-based caucuses, like the Disabled and Neurodivergent Graduate Workers Caucus, the Black Graduate Workers Caucus, and, and a range of others, and those caucuses will be represented in various ways on our bargaining team at the negotiating table. Um, And then in terms of teaching, yeah, I do try to bring both issues of equity and inclusion and also issues of labor, which are, of course, related um, to my classroom. So, for example, this semester I'm teaching a course called, like, Radical Boston, and we spent a couple of weeks on a general strike that happened at Boston University in the 70s um, that involved solidarity between all different types of workers from tenure-track faculty to graduate students to undergraduates to um, librarians, clerical workers, and a range of other groups. So anyway, I try to, I try to bring that, those issues into my teaching. I know at UB, we've particularly found a way with CWA to employ international graduate workers as union leadership and as organizers in order to compensate them for their time and labor without obviously violating visa restrictions, because that's obviously a hard stop. And and we don't want international graduate workers to feel as though their labor isn't valued when their voice and their perspective is obviously instrumental. So this enables us or it would, this enables international graduate workers to really actively participate and have their labor valued and to make it something that they can continue to do because they're, they're being compensated for it. And then more broadly, actually, just a few weeks ago, I was teaching Eugene V. Debs, and I was having a conversation with my students about Debs, particularly this is 1890s Debs, or you know, 1890s, early 1900s. And we were talking a lot about what union practices looked like in the 1890s and early 1900s, which are you know, vastly different from now and how when we are talking about unions and unionization at that time, it was often white men were unionized um, and who that excluded, even though we might look at that rhetoric now and think of it as radical or very you know, forward thinking, but it actually is still 
excluding a large group of workers from who would have those protections to begin with. And so I think that part of, for me, part of, you know, incorporating marginalized voices as well is, is thinking about what have we contem- what have we considered to be a kind of norm or a, a, a strong labor voice, but who is actually still just excluding others as well and being able to provide more nuance or just more complexity has always been important. All right, and now we'll transition to our follow-up conversation with Joanna and Francesca. In a quick roundtable style, let's all begin with brief introduction. I can start. Uh, again, I am Lauren Lorraine Mullen. I can go next. Again, I'm Max Chapnick. Hey, I'm Johanna Kingslutsky. I'm Francesca Kalnese. Yeah, so we'll start with a couple of more specific questions. First for Francesca, we remember that you talked about teaching in your MLA presentation and specifically the relationship between the teaching of close reading of hard poetry and the similarities between that and interpreting difficult contract language. And so we're curious if you might expand on this connection between difficult contract language and pedagogy, especially in the context of close reading. Absolutely. So I think part of why connecting these two things to the classroom is so important to me is because I am less sure about having scholarship that focuses on labor be the thing that mobilizes union work or other forms of solidarity, but instead seeing the the conversation about like, what are we doing in the classroom to enable our students to navigate the current political systems, their current lives, and things like health insurance that are very difficult to figure out this seems to be a skill set that maxed on to close reading and to going into something with very little certainty about it. So whether it's um, a health insurance document or an Emily Dickinson poem, you're going to have words where you're going to have to figure out what the ambiguities are. And so this sort of approach of we're teaching students skills of how to be uncomfortable, how to exhibit patience, how to figure out things that they maybe aren't supposed to have 100% certainty about, which unfortunately is both bureaucratic documents and art. (laughs) Um, There's actually a purposeful overlap of like our inability to understand bureaucratic things and the language there. And then a lot of the skills that come in with reading poetry and being comfortable with trying to figure out what something means, where you have to learn whether or not a comma actually matters for the meaning of the term before it. That something like out-of-pocket maximum in health insurance is a really annoying and bizarre term, but you can figure it out in much the same ways that you take your skills of, okay, I'm going to slowly work through things. I'm going to figure out where there might be tensions in this document. I might figure out where there's room for me to get what I want out of it. And 
that navigation just overlaps very clearly to me that when we enable people to feel empowered and comfortable with things that are supposed to feel confusing and otherwise unnavigable, we move them closer on the path to being able to join in with work like navigating health insurance for other people, like bargaining over contracts where the language isn't necessarily how we would put it in our own plain words, but it is necessary for it to take certain forms for legal protection purposes and to get approved and all of that. And so this connection to me becomes a way of not radicalizing students, but making them see how their education could be useful for them navigating future systems and accomplishing their own goals for activism or other sort of, how do I simply manage to make it through this <laughs> overly complicated, overly um, capitalistic society that we currently endure. Great, thank you. And yeah, next time I teach an Emily Dickinson poem, I can say, you know, this is useful because you're going to have to learn some bureaucratic documents in the future and you're going to have to read them because they're inevitable in every student's future life. Well, and I think the other thing for those of us on the panel who work in the 19th century is every novel we encounter seems to have some sort of contested will or estate or other a difficult document where we've gotten these lessons through our literature that where systems can kind of restrict us and confuse us, we've got to learn how to navigate them. And bringing those skills in from the classroom and saying that this will have some application to your own life, but also be connected to how you can press back at these things, how you can take a voice for yourself, how you can say, no, I actually understand this and you're wrong about it. Seems really important to me. I love that. Um, so Johanna, um, we have a specific question for you. Also, um, in your MLA presentation, you take a somewhat opposite stance to some others and maybe some of the um, ideas that we've just heard, which is that you discuss the disconnect between scholarship and union work. More specifically, you talked about how an early 19th century conception of art as autonomous helps perpetuate the idea that labor that's related to aesthetics is not real labor in a certain way. Um, and so I, we were wondering if you could say more about that. I, I appreciate the question and I want to slightly reframe a little bit because I think that a lot of people, if, if I were to talk about the relationship between art and politics, would think of this notion of autonomous art, the autonomy of art. Um, and uh, I'm a little skeptical of that term because I think it's been exploded to mean a lot of different things. Probably the way that many people would define it in the abstract is like the idea that art operates totally separately from politics um, and, or any kind of advocacy work at all. And I think very few people who, you know, certainly at the genesis of the term in the 18th century probably didn't mean it that way. 
And hopefully very few people think of art that way now. I mean, I think we have several centuries, at least, of examples of art definitively engaging with politics. And so I'm not really interested in a claim that art is autonomous in the sense of being totally separate from political work. But the way that I'm thinking about things is um, I spoke in my MLA presentation about Shaftesbury, the Earl of Shaftesbury's work, and, and he has a book called, it's a very long title, but it's called Characteristics of Men, Manners, Opinions, Times, and which came out in 1711. And in it, um, he talks about this, he's, he's kind of the originator in the British tradition, and as far as I know, in general, of this idea of disinterestedness, which is kind of the key word that I'm going to talk about more than autonomy. So disinterestedness is usually, and obviously this later gets taken up by people like Kant, although there are debates about how closely these two people are connected, given that one's German and one's English. In any case, um, disinterestedness is usually glossed as the idea that art is selfless, um, that it's not motivated by selfish concerns. And as somebody who studies energy, I'm interested in kind of defamiliarizing terms that relate to art. And so the way that I would gloss disinterestedness based on what Shaftesbury says in this 1711 book is that it's about inexhaustibility. So like thinking about this through the lens of energy, that art is somehow inexhaustible. And so he says a couple of things related to this notion of inexhaustibility that he connects to disinterestedness. And so one of the things he says is that art is when you consume art, it's distinct from consuming any other kind of object or commodity because you don't use it up. Again, it's, it's inexhaustible. So you look at a painting and you're not using it up. And he says that's distinct from obviously consuming something like food. It's distinct, he says, from sex, which he sees as an exhaustible resource. So there's something unique about art that what makes it disinterested is that it's impossible to consume. And this is kind of implicitly related to this idea he has that, which is like a platonic idea, which is that art is connected to the universal mind is what he calls it, but basically some kind of infinite power source that is divine, but also for him, at least imminent in the world. And so art for him is both impossible to use up because it's not consumed when you look at it or, you know, supposedly consume it in some fashion. And also it's like very closely related to this idea of an infinite power source in, in the divine, which he compares to things we would now recognize as energy, like the sun, you know, heat, all, all sorts of energy metaphors we now see as energy, even though uh, the word energy was used at the time as well as force, but they had a slightly different concept of energy from what we do now. I think it's probably recognizable to us as an infinite energy source. And so something that interests me about this, just to return it to like the present moment, is this is a a dangerous conception to me, because even if we all buy into the idea that art is political, this idea that art has this kind of different relationship to energy from any other mode of production is really pernicious on all sides of the political spectrum to me, because there's this is an idea that's taken up by capital, or we could even look at like, you know, capital in universities to mean that you don't need to invest in arts or humanities, for example, to get something out of it. So we have that coming from the more conservative side. But 
This also affects the more left side of the political spectrum, I believe, because it means that we think that when we produce art or scholarship, to me, I'm kind of using the term very broadly to mean anything in the arts or the humanities and maybe some social sciences, but that when we produce certain kinds of aesthetic and intellectual objects, um, that we don't need to invest energy in them to get a lot out of them because art objects are somehow operating in this different energy imaginary or different energy ecosystem. To me, that is part of why we see this phenomenon of artists and scholars who, to me, are quite hypocritical in that they're investing in this like radical ideology when they write their work, but they they talk the talk, they don't walk the walk, which is something we've seen in a lot of universities, a lot of union and labor campaigns inside and outside universities, that there's a lot of, you know, pro-labor rhetoric, but no actual substantiation of that. And I think that's because art is seen as this this place where you can disproportionately extract value and resources in a way that go like a union card drive or something more clearly requires like a some sort of scarcity element that you can use up your energy you can get exhausted doing that and so people tend to stay away from the more concrete labor steps i think when they're overly invested in this notion of their art being political and so that's the the danger that i'm worried about Yeah, I I think that's really interesting, too, because I think that there's, you know, one component of the the union work somehow doesn't need to be compensated work because we're doing it because we care deeply about others and like the solidarity of others. And that, you know, even if I wasn't being paid, I would still do this job. That's also, I think, very dangerous because we should be compensating people for their labor. And that's, you know, that's fundamentally the crux of of being in a union. And that's applicable to those who work in that union as well or who are doing labor with that union. But I'm thinking about that. The difference, too, in how we, like the the example of the card drive, in that when we do orientations and tell people what it is like to be in the union, what the union does, we always have to balance the kind of the big picture of ideally, you know, we're here for shared governance, we're here for a, a democratic say in the workplace, and that we really have to balance that with okay, what what tangibly am I doing to guarantee these things? Or great, it would be fantastic to have shared governance at a very broad level. But also if my my unit is still making sub-poverty wages, what does it look like to have shared governance when everyone is making $15,000 below the cost of living? And trying to find a way to balance both of those things in a way that is still, again, like kind of getting that big picture across and in a kind of, you know, ideally, what would we, we want? But also concretely laying steps to really help people in a meaningful way and to collectively come together to to get those those tangible things but yeah I, I, that's a great i think that's a great distinction and a great point so you know back at mla we had a great discussion about this topic this the kind of like research and practice and if our research fields inform our union work or vice versa so for example, the question that guided us at MLA specifically, or the example, were the um, adjuncts striking at the new school in New York City. So in two emails to students during the strike, the provost's office evoked implicitly threatening language around grades, while in a separate email referenced bell hooks on the paradise of learning. The new school's Twitter bio reads, a university in New York City for scholarly activists, fearless artists, and convention-defying designers. 
I think, Joanna, you sort of definitely started this conversation, but I'd love for us to keep talking further about how we see the difference in, in our research versus in our union work. I don't think any of us mentioned being like labor studies scholars um, in our description of our own work, which I think is interesting. I certainly wouldn't consider myself a labor studies scholar. So I, I'd love to continue that that conversation about, you know, what does it look like to what, what does that sort of balance between research versus our, our own labor practices and just open that more broadly? For me, they should be completely distinct, uh, which I think Max was alluding to before as well. Like, I think that anytime you try to connect them, you, you end up in this really pernicious mindset of thinking that you don't have to invest in the like material reality of labor organizing. I do have elements of labor in my work. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I have like a, I don't know if I would call it Marxist or Marxian yet, I'm still figuring it out, but some kind of Marx adjacent element in, in my dissertation. Um, I'm really invested in these ideas because I'm interested in them, but I would never think that there's an ethical obligation to do that sort of thing, to be a good activist or a good union organizer. And I think that if you, if you do connect them at all beyond just like a a level of interest or in the sense of like curiosity, then it, it risks really cutting down on the amount of uh, organizing you do. I agree with Joanna that it's dangerous to demand any sort of overlap between research and your labor work that I think that's where we do see a lot of the hypocrisy that um, you've talked about. I also I think we consistently have a problem of what does it mean to be in graduate school? What does it mean to be in the academy where too many graduate students take it as kind of like leave no trace camping where you come, you get what you wanted out of it and then you leave. And instead, like it's something where we know that we're stronger, we're all better off when we take the approach that you actually do have to leave a mark on the institutions that you've been at. And for something like health insurance, part of what draws me in is because it enables the lives of graduate students while they're at the institution, whether it's people who are disabled or have chronic illness, or they're seeking gender affirming care, or people who have children while they're in graduate school, that it mobilizes the notion that we're full people living full complex lives that need to be honored by being offered real and substantial benefits connected to our labor for the university. And to me, I find frustration and bafflement at the idea that you would show up to an institution and say, I'm just here for a few years. I'll take what you give me. And I'm not going to leave a mark on making this a more livable experience for the people who come next. And that's part of where it's, it does become really hard to connect one's research and to also protect one's time for research because as we've talked about it, it's really a 
huge energy ask for people to do labor work. And yet I don't see any other way to be in conversation with my institution about what I need to survive at it. Um, that to me, that seems so essential and so basic that I just, I do constantly struggle with this dichotomy that we talk about of should I be more cynical? Should I be <laughs> spending less time doing things that aren't just producing articles to publish and <laughs> working on my dissertation chapters? But ultimately that feels like the wrong way to be around people. And I feel like I'm a worse teacher as well if I show that sort of disinterest in my institution and the environment that um, so many of us have decided to participate in. You know, speaking more broadly about the current ongoing mass casualization of labor and higher education, and that many of us are either on the job market now or you know, perhaps presumably will be in the future, you know, how has participating in union work over the past few years perhaps changed or solidified, you know, what it means to teach in the profession to you? When when you go on the job market, you know, like I know, speaking for myself personally, when I look at the job market and I see a bunch of one-year non-renewable visiting assistantships, I'm not going to apply to them because I don't want to uproot my life every calendar year to go somewhere new. And so there are, there are types of jobs now that I feel like have emerged that I just find is like not things I would be willing to uproot my life for. And there are plenty of people who would, they're valid jobs. I personally just would not. And it's a job I, I would just not consider. Um, so I guess both like the labor of teaching, but also, you know, what the more broadly, what is available on the job market and what's being asked of candidates who who are entering the job market. Yeah, I mean, I know um, Francesco was talking about teaching right before this. So I'm, I'm really curious to hear what you have to say. Um, but just briefly, yeah, I mean, a huge part of why I do the union work I'm doing here is because of the threat of casualization after we graduate. As far as I'm concerned, Graduate students in many ways have more protections, workplace protections than contingent faculty do. And so when I graduate and my colleagues graduate, we're all going into a less safe, less stable work environment in a lot of ways. And so I want to use the time I have here to, first of all, practice, like, <laughs> practice getting good at unionization and like having a successful strike. And broaden also the horizon for what's possible for the labor movement in universities and in general in this country. The labor movement has been like very depressed in general for the last 50 plus years, 70 plus years. And in universities, especially, it's just like it's just gotten so bad. I think we all all know that. And so uh, to me, like being able to successfully pull off a strike or a car drive or a day of action or whatever it is um, changes the, you know, what's possible for contingent faculty as well, um, which I would do even if I weren't likely to go, you know, go on the academic job market, but I am going to go on the academic job market and will be one of those people in like three years. So it's, it's very important to me to do this work now while I have more protection so that I can, I and other people can undertake that riskier work later. I agree with so much of what John just said about 
um, the unprotectedness of contingent labor, about how we need to build greater unionization efforts with labor at universities across the board, that this is such a huge, big, ongoing struggle. On the West Coast, in our UAW region, we've kind of had a um, <laughs> a feeling of it's higher ed and auto workers, and who who are we as a UAW region now that it's so dominated by the higher ed movement taking a lot of the lead, and we're informed by the practices that came before us, but we're also seeing that feeling of what's missing in our universities are more teachers that when I talk about my instructional practices, I also get into debates with my colleagues about, okay, so what's the ideal way to do writing assessment? What's the best way to present certain topics um, and deal with doing lessons that interact with talking about systemic oppression in our classrooms. And the answer to all of our like pedagogical problems is you can't simply keep stuffing more students in a classroom and having the same results or increasing your output of like better education. That what's missing is more teachers that my writing instruction would be better if my classroom was smaller. And it's as simple as that. And that's a labor movement question as much as it is anything about pedagogy, anything about how I practice my teaching. And that's part of where, particularly when more and more of um, my peers do not find jobs when they're stuck in a cycle of being beholden to adjunct labor because they can't move for a one-year position, whether it's for family reasons, whether it's for economic reasons, that they can't take the risk on nine months of health insurance only, whatever it is, that makes them beholden to this problem of, I've got to take on more work to justify my presence continuing at my own university. And that is part of where what our students see is just fundamentally a lack of instructors, um, that they would get a better education if our labor was less contingent, if it was something where there was simply more of an emphasis on having strong numbers of teachers at the university. And I see this across departments. I see this where people TAing classes at my university receive very little warning what they're going to have to help out at, where people can't be prepared, where people can't deliver the quality of instruction they want to because of labor issues. And so that becomes something where, you know, we say... Our working conditions are our students' learning conditions, but it's fundamentally true that the amount of time we can spend working on our teaching is dependent on how many colleagues we have who have the time and energy to focus on their own work, who aren't working second jobs, 
who can be fully present in what they want to be doing. So there's no element of how I teach in a classroom that's not affected by labor conditions across academia. I I think that's a great point that there is no like teaching in a vacuum, even if content aside, just the very practice of how many students we teach. If we're working second, third jobs while also trying to be teaching assistants or graduate assistants, you know, everything is falls under the purview of, of a workplace condition or workplace employment because it's all um, I remember having a conversation with an undergraduate student reporter for our university newspaper who asked, you know, what would be the top thing that would change what it meant to be a student or to be a worker at this university? And I said, our stipends, because having a higher stipend means I don't have to work a second or third job. It means I can actually sit and do my research and teach. And it's really just, you know, so much of that one stipends or, you know, having workplace solidarity among um graduate assistants and full-time faculty and adjuncts to be able to say, we can't teach in these conditions, they're unacceptable, et cetera. You know, so much of that is all just, it's all wrapped up into one, you know, one element. I guess maybe we should bring it back to C19 a little bit. Um, I know we talked a little bit about Shaftesbury. I'm thinking a little bit about, one of my chapters is on Louise May Alcott. Like you were saying, Lawrence, if our stipends are higher, then we work better. And so when I'm writing about Alcott, the only thing I can think of is like, how much did she make for each poem? And in, especially in her early years before Little Women, how much was $10 in 1857? How much did she make? How How was she hustling? I can't help but think about like the sort of minute details of the connection between labor for art and the value that you and the monetary value that she was getting from it. And I guess maybe, I don't know if that inspires anyone else, but if you have any final thoughts about the 19th century and labor actions and what unionizing and what unionizing brings to your study of the 19th century. This is over on the British side, but I have a professor who always talks about Trollope writing and writing and writing every morning before he went off to work as a postmaster. And I'm always pushing back and saying, no, that's not the ideal that we should still have for productivity, that the idea that we're working at all hours that we can find on our research because we're so busy trying to meet our bills, pay rent, and survive in the daylight hours is simply not a feasible thing. And this has stopped being a cute anecdote about (laughs) how this has always been true, that you have to find room for your passions in the odd hours. And that can't be true for academia to survive, I think. And so I'm always pushing back and saying, so... How about the solidarity letter instead? Would you like to sign? <laughs> but it's something where I know too many people who live like that. And I know that's not a way for me to spend decades of my life. And I want people who feel strongly about intellectual work and about teaching and about the importance of education in their lives to be able to be 
at universities in the future. And this is the only way I can figure out how to make that possible. I was thinking um, about Max, when you started this question, thinking about how I've been reading AJ Downing a lot, um, parts of the horticulturalist and some of his longer works and whatnot, and how so much of his argument is always fundamentally that we build houses to like accommodate our, what our social and, and sort of like moral imperatives are built into our houses. They're constructed in that way, in a particular way, beyond like the different aesthetics of where you're situating your house, et cetera. And I've recently started thinking a lot about that just in terms of our own institutions and how things are often, and what I tell my students too, is that, you know, a, a movie isn't edited in a particular way accidentally. You don't accidentally get the final cut of a movie or you don't accidentally get the final version of a novel, that there are a series of deliberate choices along the way that get you to that final product. And thinking a lot about the construction of the home for AJ Downing, but you know, the construction of our universities. What are our universities literally, how are they literally made? I know that North Campus for the University of Buffalo was built during the sort of anti, anti-war, anti-protest architecture style, the 60s and 70s. So how do we even, how do we build a lot of the institutions that we inhabit also reflects how we view labor in many ways or how we want labor to function um, or not function when we put classrooms in basements with no windows, you know, just the ways that we inhabit space too. And that that's, you know, a question that isn't a new question. Um, it's certainly not, you know, particular to the 19th century either, but it's just come up to me more. The more that I, that I read Downing and read Davis um, and are, they're thinking about the construction of the American home to reflect, you know, quote unquote, American ideals. You know, what does that say about our universities and how our universities are built and structured and the land that they, the stolen land that they are built on to begin with, etc. All right. Well, thank you both for returning and having this continued conversation with us. I know when Max and I initially came up with the MLA panel, you know, this was really the thing that we had in mind. This was that end product, that conversation of, um, you know, those of us who are often so siloed in our own respective universities and don't have the opportunity to talk to other graduate workers or that maybe within our union, um, you know, we are the only higher ed portion of our union and our unions actually other, you know, other trade and, and other labor. Um, and so this was really what we wanted to be able to have these conversations uh, more in depth about our research and our practice. So thank you all again. And thank you to Mashira who could be here, but who we greatly appreciated having, you know, at the MLA panel. So thank you all again. So if you're listening to this and find yourself particularly inspired to support graduate workers, please consider reaching out to your university's graduate worker union. And we know that not all universities obviously have graduate worker unions because only about 20% of us are unionized, but there are certainly graduate workers who are organizing around something, whether that be higher wages, a living wage campaign against fees for better health insurance, etc. So we'd encourage you to reach out to those people. Oftentimes as graduate workers, we have a lot on our plate. Um, we are doing our own organizing, our own teaching, our research, our dissertations, um, and knowing that there's a particular faculty member who is going to be or who is interested in what we're doing really helps us be able to know who we can contact should we need faculty support. So don't hesitate. We love to know that faculty support us. Uh, we're fine with cold call emails uh, that show that support. So don't hesitate to reach out.